My name is Dr. Nate Shanock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Ells for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm part of our growing research team. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling the gaps of each department like Lou. And I'm also autistic. This is our 27th episode of the podcast, Hot Fun in the Summertime, with newest advisory board member Connor B. Sturgis and Shelly Hedge, our controller. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us, and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all you four autism fans. First, here are some news and updates about the foundation. If you want to, I don't exactly have any sound effects, but just think of this as like a news ticker. Um, so the first uh, item is episode 26. Tune in to episode 26 to listen to our interviews with advisory board member, artist and poet Andrew Blitman, and Graciela Gadia, who is responsible for all the artwork around their campus. They talk about how their creativity has not only inspired them, but has inspired others, while also allowing a way for the arts to create a greater mental health unit for the people who have been touched by them. As a way to illustrate, no pun intended, the point, two people were profiled who are involved in the arts and have a background of autism. Make sure to also listen to the rest of the program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. For those who are listening who are interested in my life, while the flu was a terrible brute, it didn't stop me from traveling to Denver, Colorado to participate in my first ever national APSI conference. The 500 registrants, including board members from other chapters, presenters, exhibitors, and other interested attendees, it was a great way to network, meet new people, and learn about how alike everyone is in regards to the mission of gainful employment for people with disabilities. We also had some big keynote speakers for the three days that the conference was held. Unfortunately, there are still a few states that do not have an APSI chapter, so I couldn't meet people from literally every state. Being a member of Alice for Autism and went for the importance it may offer to our employment team, the national conference was not exactly what I expected. The three keynote speeches didn't exactly say what it is that I was hoping for, even if they were great speeches themselves. And sometimes I wasn't too, um, I didn't feel one-to-one on the sessions, but I really did appreciate why and that they were there. It does make one feel a little bit um, different when one hears about an interesting grant program that is only in Colorado and is still testing until 2024, for example. But that's not to say that the going there 
was a bad idea because there were some very useful takeaways, great connections, a lot of fantastic exhibitors, all the speakers and presenters and all the people there were fantastic and excellent. And I'm pretty sure, you know, you go what you come for. And if you go there for employment, you get back with employment. You go there for, you know, disability rights, you get back disability rights. And it all fits into that same, into a similar kind of funnel. Um, and so, yes, the connections I made were invaluable. And I can imagine you see my hours spent there to bolster up the team I work with because there were some, the useful sessions that I was that I sat on were very, very useful. Now, maybe um, for those things I had thoughts about, I could be on the planning committee as a chapter member for next time. But I'm just not certain if I would want to join the national board yet. Still, what a great experience to have, to know that so many people are interested in, in the idea that people with disabilities should be able to get jobs and should be able to get paid and should be able to have the same expectations as anyone else. So, a little bit related thereof, I am going to talk about Autistic Pride Day. So for those of us who are autistic, there is a special day that is celebrated on the 18th of June each year, a day before my birthday, coincidentally, and that is Autistic Pride Day. Celebrated in 2005 by Aspies for Freedom, and Aspie is a term of usage for someone with Asperger's syndrome, a form of autism, on the birthday of their youngest member and modeled after the gay pride movement, Autistic Pride Day is meant to be a celebration of the accomplishments and humanity of those with autism. As a response to those who saw autism as a disease or as a handicap to success. As many have listened to the podcast know, I do not doubt that there is validity in thinking that cases of severe or profound autism are very different than how many self-advocates see autism, but I also have felt in the past that something that feels so integral to my character is <clears throat> something that maybe instead of focusing on how to get rid of it, instead to focus on how I can live a better life with it as part of my personality. Because I will have to say, probably, if you ask enough people, uh, part of my peculiar traits and part of my personality may stem from having had this diagnosis since I was extremely little from a diagnostic point of view. Um, and I would, so I would agree with that statement. Oh, and, and I really do thank you, uh, Nate, because, um, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky and a little bit difficult to feel like um, that whatever you have with you, no matter what it is, and it could be anything, uh, it's not, it doesn't have to be autism, it could be, you know, OCD, it could be 
you know, even dyslexia or something like that. And, you know, the, the, the feeling sometimes is, well, what would I be like without it? You know, but what I think it is, is that you use the tools you come with in order to create a greater idea of who that person with those tools can be as a way to present yourself to the greater world. Instead of uh, feeling like that this is hopeless, um, instead, you're given those tools as a way to make other people, to, to, to make the world a better place in a way for people who may not have all the advantages or may not have all the, you know, all the, what one would call typical functions that other people would attribute. Um, I, I feel like I'm almost verging onto uh, verbal gibberish here, but if, if anything, um, you know, uh, whether it's a period, there's uh, no, it's not a weakness if you have it, it's, it's a strength in a way in which you're able to share experiences with others that others may not even acknowledge or realize. And so that is my, uh, later on in the program, we'll be talking a lot about inspiration and hopefully that's my inspiration of the, of the episode to any of you who are listening. But it's, it's, not, it's not bad to feel like you have something and that you may even take a little bit of pride in it because, you know, it may make you a better person and it may make you feel like you're doing things in a positive manner. So, because it was Autistic Pride Day on the 18th, I've written a blog article about all the accomplishments made by our advisory board members. While I've written about them before, it is important for people to understand how successful our members are at their mission of presenting a better foundation for those of us with autism. Make sure to keep yourself tuned into our website and check our blog archives for this new one. It should be great. As it is, I've been gamming my way through so much of this. I feel like I should open a little bit for discussion on the topic of Father's Day. So Father's Day and my birthday, along with Juneteenth, the celebration over the last of the slaves being freed, were all on the same day this year. What an important triple-decker of a day on June 19th it was. For that day, I made sure that the first half corresponded exactly to Father's Day, allowing my father the comfort of sleeping in and spending time to himself. And I also gave him a limited edition line-in cover, which was to celebrate World Autism Month. Nate, how did you celebrate Father's Day? Well, Merrick, I first want to say that your message uh, from a couple minutes ago was was very uh, poignant and you know, it was, it, it was, uh, it had a lot of meaning to it because you're talking about, 
acceptance and even valuing differences that a person might have and whether it's autism and that means thinking more outside of the box or being quirky or having a, a really good sense of humor um, or it's something like anxiety or depression which can oftentimes be a function of, of caring too much, caring excessively about the people around you. You know, those um, differences are noteworthy. And sometimes if you take away, if you pull away one aspect of someone's personality um, that maybe could potentially be seen as a weakness, you might also be thereby eliminating three or four traits that people love and could really be seen as a, as a strength. So um, that was, that was well said from you and shifting gears to father's day. I, my dad and I went fishing this father's day. We, we haven't gone in several years. And so we had um, a fishing outed, uh, we had a, a fishing uh, experience and we competed to see who caught the most fish. And of course I let him win because it was Father's Day. That was the only determinant there. And um, then we, um, we spent some time outside, um, just enjoying the great weather, had a good lunch. And as I was reading the the, the show notes for today preparing for the episode I I saw that you mentioned the movie Hustle on Netflix which is really ironic because I actually watched that movie with my dad on Father's Day so maybe we could give a little bit of a, of a review on that in a minute <laughs> yeah <laughs> well um and Hustle had a father right? You had Adam Sandler play a father to a daughter. And a lot of that movie was about how he was trying his hardest to uh, be a great father to his daughter. But uh, business cool. was, uh, you know, the line of work he was in, he couldn't really stay at home too much. So yeah, how, how relevant <laughs> to that movie could play to uh, Father's Day. Yeah, I would take it a step further too and say that in many ways he became a father figure to the uh, basketball player he was trying to help become a professional who didn't really have a present father growing up. So um, there's, yeah, there's two connections there. That's uh, actually, that's perfect. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> next Father's Day, go and see Hustle. Rent, uh, watch it on Netflix. Uh, by then, it would probably already have won uh, Oscar for something. <laughs> so anyways, um, going straight to my birthday, because like I said, uh, June 19th was quite a day. Um, uh, okay, so this past June 19th, I turned 36 years old. Um, 
And I kind of saw the National Conference as a welcoming embrace of my birthday, especially since E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, was canceled this year. And yes, I know, I'm a geek, I'm a nerd, I'm self-professed, and I'm proud of it. Okay. Uh, on Saturday of that weekend, I was able to have a long lunch to celebrate. I planned it a day prior due to the possible absence of special guests due to Father's Day, and it was a lot of fun. For Sunday, I was able to sleep in. I went to see The Phantom of the Open in theaters with my parents, which was a very good film. Although um, my father had some differing opinions about it. <laughs> I, I don't wish to, uh, to blow up his spot here, but he really did. Um, I had dinner with them at Aglio Olio in Boynton Beach, Florida self of where I live, and I ended up watching one of the new Netflix features, Hustle, to end the day. And I did believe that it was quite a good movie. Um, I almost feel like opening a section of this podcast for Merrick's reviews, but nonetheless, I will just say that the protagonists of Uncut Gems and Hustle, both played by Adam Sandler, would be interesting to see their paths cross. <laughs> I can only imagine you had Jack and Jill... And you had, um, what were those movies that came out before? You had Eight Crazy Nights, Jack and Jill, and all of a sudden, here's Adam Sandler doing Uncut Gems and Hustle. And it's like, okay. So I guess he's, he's becoming a really serious actor now. Yeah, that's right. He's taken a 360. And I have to say, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I think he does a very good job in these serious movies. Yeah, I do know that there was some talk about maybe nominating him for an Oscar for Uncut Gems, but we'll see what happens with this one. All right, so um, going back to our home base of the L Center of Excellence in lovely Jupiter, Florida, uh, starting Tuesday, July 5th, we will have our next annual summer camp program, also called our Moving and Grooving Summer Camp, or for individuals aged 6 to 21 years of age, fun-filled days of late. Activities on our beautiful Center of Excellence campus will include golf, tennis, yoga, art, fitness, exercises, dance, and more. From 8.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m., campers will participate in these activities while building social communication, motor and regulatory skills with staffers, while first in recreation, speech and language, behavior analysis, special education, music therapy, and sports and fitness. Our summer camp is so popular that I didn't even need to promote it since we've got so many people asking to come. Please be sure to contact Greg Connors, our rec coordinator, to fit your family in for either this time or the next go around. And so always, it is time to go over Today in the World of Autism. And it starts with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock, and his fantastic research-oriented stories. Okay, we've got some good stories on our plate for you today, folks, especially considering this is the belated birthday episode for Merrick. We're going to make these stories very exciting today. So I'd like to first speak about an investigation in the UK on the effects of a 90 minute per week drumming therapy program for adolescents with ASD. 
The outcomes of the study were hyperactivity, inattention, and brain connectivity. This study was conducted by a team of researchers from the universities of Chichester, King's College in London, Hart Perry, and Essex that were working together under a collective group called the Clem Burke Drumming Project. Merrick, trivia question, who is this group named after? Well, I am very, very interested in wondering how much of an involvement uh, Mr. Clem Burke himself has in the drumming project because he is very uh, well known within the musical community. Um, at least to me, he is. He was the original drummer, I believe, for Blondie. And he also drummed for the Talking Heads. And he's just, uh, you know, a drummer. If you need a drumming for anything or you need to fill in something, I guess you call Clem Burke because he's been very active on the drumming scene. Well, thank you. Did, that was did, did I get the did I get the uh, lightning round? Ding 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 ding. <laughs> Mer you won one million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll ask me about something and I'll have no idea and then I'll lose the million dollars. Congratulations, sir. Come on down. You're about to hear the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, that is a good question about Clem Burke's involvement in the project. And I have to say, what a legendary name that is too. That just speaks you know, a future in, in drumming to me. And so as part of this study, a group of participants that had no prior drumming experience were given two 45-minute lessons per week over the span of two months. Each participant was aged between 16 and 20 years old. And at baseline, before the intervention, they completed a drumming assessment as well as an MRI scan, which is a brain imaging tool that can look at white matter and gray matter within the brain and speak about the volume of certain areas, certain important areas. So they did these assessments and their guardians supplied information on recent behavioral difficulties that the participant was experiencing. The results demonstrated that those who improved their drumming abilities showed fewer indications of hyperactivity, inattention, and repetitive behaviors from start to finish. Participants also had increased synchronicity or coherence between brain regions that were responsible for inhibitory control, which is the ability to focus on a stimulus while there are distracting um, stimuli in the environment. So maybe trying to do homework while uh, a family member is playing music or watching TV and impulsivity, which is the ability to withhold um, an initial gut reaction. And so the two brain regions uh, that showed higher synchronicity were the prefrontal cortex and the motor cortex. The Clem Burke project has been involved in research on the effects of drumming on brain functioning for the past 10 years. I've linked their website to the show notes for today. 
And I believe that Clem Burke has contributed funding uh, to this project and has a lot of interest in the research that's being done to answer the question from before. I've also linked the publication that came out of this project. Merrick, question for you. Why do you feel that listening to and playing music is so beneficial for brain health? And we could extend this to mental health as well. Oh, I was thinking about extending it to ask you about your drumming experiences other than drumming on the desk. Uh-oh, I don't like that direction. <laughs> but yeah, um, so actually it's interesting that you uh, mentioned this because I'm thinking to myself, not just that this, it's not just therapy or treatment for those with autism, but possibly also for those with ADHD. And it is interesting because drumming involves a lot of repetition, but it also involves repetition in such a sequential order and in such a synchronistic order between all the different drums that you have in a kit that, that basically I can understand how it can create a greater line of focus by having you do these commands, while also the fact that drumming itself, you know, drums, even, even with the certain drumsticks that are meant to reduce volume, it's still kind of a loud instrument and it still has force and it still has push. So mm -hmm. that basically is a way of going, you know, if you ever lose focus, you just hear like a big bass drum being hit inside your head and all of a sudden your focus is back. So there may be some kind of a mentalistic thing with all of this. But I think overall, in terms of uh, brain health, I think that uh, music itself is very interesting and it's very unusual because it's one of the few mediums that you can basically do or hear or, you know, wherever you are. And it's something that you can always do no matter what, or usually, yeah, I mean, even if you don't have a voice, you can still try to use your fingers to drum. And if you do have a voice, you can sing, you know, music isn't just about playing an instrument. It's about the it's about where your soul is and where you yourself happen to be. So, <clears throat> so if, if you're, you know, if you're in a car or if you're at home, even if you're, you know, doing something that's very, very focused or something that maybe makes you, not have time for that much of anything else, music can still play a role. It's not like a movie where you have to concentrate on everything. It's not like a video game where you have to use your controller to move people. And it's not like a book where you have to read everything or else the book would be useless. Music itself is all about rhythm, it's about melody, it's about tone, 
you know, even if you have disabilities of sorts, you can still feel connection to it. So it is something that is extremely useful because it is so fluid and because it is so elastic. Um, yeah. You know, and also because you can listen to it and it doesn't even have to say a thing and still be good. It doesn't have to throw, it doesn't have to feel like it's judging you. It doesn't have to feel like it's making any assumptions about your character or the like. You listen to an instrumental, you know, by one of the major guitarists and it's just basically a guitar instrumental. Maybe you have drums and everything, but there are no lyrics. And so, you know, you just listen to it and it feels soothing. No matter what you watch, no matter what you read, no matter what you play, there is always a narrative there. But in music, there are points and moments in which if there is a narrative, you really have to find it. Yeah. Um, one example I would probably give is, um, you know, trying to think of a really, really good um, one of my, uh, okay, so take away, um, I love the song Light My Fire by The Doors. Great song. But take away, you know, the parts where Jim Morrison sings, and you've got this three or four minute fantastic instrumental section of the album version, not the single version, because they eliminate most of it. But you just listen to that isolated and it's this great instrumental section, but you don't really feel like it's saying anything or it's telling you anything. You don't hear it, and it's basically saying to you, oh, you have to feel this way, you have to feel that way. Instead, it just asks you, do you want to groove? Do you, do you want to be a part of this? Do you want to be a part of this amazing story that these instruments are creating, these man-made instruments are creating, and somehow... The, these are so powerful that it feels like you're listening to something from any universe out there. And I think that that is a very underrated concept and a very underrated part of what music is all about. You don't Absolutely. even have to have lyrics. You don't even have to have a voice. You just need to have a sense of somewhere and a sense of, and a sensation of something. And that's all you really need. That's really well said, Merrick. And music has endless possibilities, right? It's one of the only means of communication that I really feel that there's something for everybody in music. Yeah, it's universal, have... basically. You don't even, you basically, language doesn't really matter. If you have, right. if you do not know that much of your language, you do not know much of anyone's language, language doesn't matter because music um, is universal. Absolutely. And from a purely a brain health perspective, when there, there's been research done on how our brains activate while we're listening to music and music sets the brain into more of an alpha wave state of firing. And this is associated not only with feelings of positive mood, um, but also it's 
it correlates with being in a flow state. So sort of when a person is, is feeling in their element um, and the alpha state also has important implications for creativity and allowing the brain to, to rest and recover from a difficult day. And I feel that that is why a lot of people use music as a modality for relaxing and as a therapy after a long day. And the one other point I'll make is that listening to music also activates our temporal lobes in our brain, which is not only um, critical for auditory functioning, but also for memory. And there's a lot of interesting research being done right now on the potential of music therapy for helping to stimulate the temporal lobe and assist um, individuals with cognitive decline or Alzheimer's in, in boosting the functioning of that area. And then <laughs> promise the last one was the last point, but the last, last point here, what you said, Merrick, about playing drums and dr playing drums specifically and how that could help with attention um, was, was so on point, I thought. And um, there are a lot of corresponding attentional issues between ASD and ADHD. And if anyone's familiar with the game, uh, there, there's a memory game where you have to click on, on boxes that light up in a certain sequence. And uh, it, to some extent, playing drums, it, it would tap into working memory ability like uh, that game would. And, uh, you know, w working memory has been established as extremely important for uh, cognitive health and, and attention. Yeah, I mean, why are drums associated with, uh, you know, the military, for example? It's like the big instrument that you may think of in terms of military history. And out of all the instruments that you can think of, the drum is the most relevant to what a military does, you know? It's the focus, it's concentration, it's cohesion, it's all that stuff that you need to have. Uh, I was about to say drums, no pun intended, but it's everything you need to have in a soldier. So it, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but there was a movie that came out um, it's on, it was on Netflix when I watched it, and it was called The Music Never Stopped. And I, I think I talked about this with you before. I'm not sure if I have. If I have, I'll probably, I don't want to repeat it again, but um, have I ever mentioned that movie to you before? I don't recall speaking about it. Okay. So the synopsis of the movie is that the father of the uh in the movie is played by jk simmons who you know listeners may remember from the spider-man from the original spider-man movies uh whiplash you know he played a lot of uh, big roles um and he plays the father of the son who had like a experience that caused him 
that caused his brain to completely shut down. And this guy used to be this, you know, 60s hippie or whatever, 70s hippie. And he would go around and follow these different bands. And he was really, really interested in the music scene. And I think he really, really liked the Grateful Dead. So what happened was, is that this therapist actually played some music to him and played the Grateful Dead. And it instantly revived this person to a point in which one of the big moments in the movie was that since it takes place in the 80s, when the Grateful Dead had like their sole top 10 hit of Touch of Grey, um, he went with his father to see this concert. But it, it was all about how music can stimulate the mind in ways that very few other things can. No question about it. That's, I need to check out that movie. Yeah, it's based off of some short story. I think it was based off of a short true story or something from 1995, but I like the movie. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> next story from you. Let's shift gears here. So with Father's Day approaching, I want to commend all the fathers out there who support their children in so many different ways and try to help them navigate through child development, which, as we know, is not always an easy process. So happy Father's Day to all the amazing dads out there. Keep up the good work, please. One of the most common challenges that children face today is bullying as a result of being different from others or maybe taking a stand that is not popular with the majority of students. I know we've discussed this issue on the podcast before, but in light of recent research that's come out from, the, from a JAMA pediatrics article, I felt it would be very important to bring this discussion into light again. And this article found that autism was the top risk factor for bullying among all neurodevelopmental disorders. I've linked the article to our show notes for today. And it's notable that approximately 77% of children with ASD report that they experience bullying and children with any type of neurodevelopmental issues are at a much higher risk in general than neurotypical children. Communication issues and impulsive behaviors were two of the traits most highly correlated with the possibility of being bullied. There's data from the longitudinal study of Australian children, which indicates that the experience of being bullied is associated with a fourfold increased risk of self-harm or suicidal thoughts among adolescents aged 14 to 15 years, really stressing the important implications of this topic. There are many anti-bullying education programs being delivered throughout the country. However, these rarely include mention of the increased risk of being bullied associated with autism and other developmental or mental health conditions. Hopefully in the near future, these initiatives will be amended and other educational programs on neurodevelopmental conditions 
will be delivered to children. Not just speaking about bullying, but speaking about what types of children may be more susceptible to it and just increasing awareness on these differences, just like we try to do on this podcast. So Merrick, what are some steps that the education system and society at large can do to, um, to further assist? Well, I think um, as far as mental health conditions go, I think that there is still maybe a sense of stigma of how people with mental health conditions are seen within the community. You know, what if someone had like schizophrenia, for example, and, you know, some people may think, oh, schizophrenia, well, that person is crazy or that person is, I think that that kind of stigma needs to sort of uh, slow down a little bit. And I think that we have to refocus and also ask the same kinds of questions about how people generally see in society people with autism and other developmental conditions too. You know, what, um, I guess, what misconceptions, what biases and what, uh, you know, negligent thoughts and ignorant thoughts do we have as a society towards those with autism and other developmental conditions. Um, Another thing that comes to my mind is that, um, yeah, impulsive behaviors are very much, uh, that's one of the things, but when we talk about communication issues, um, when we remember all those comedies that we've seen in the past, a lot, many of them involve, um, in a way, maybe making a little bit of fun of, of someone who does have communication issues, or they may have impulsive behaviors. And I don't think that that many people understand how to separate laughter from being just, you know, mockery to laughter of, you know, it's a human experience, it's a human condition. Everyone has something. And it's, and instead of, you know, instead of feeling like it's, it's a difference between a gentle tease and outright, um, outright mockery to a point in which you're making fun of someone because of something that they maybe cannot help. And I'm just wondering exactly how many uh, members of our society can even understand that. Um, and I also think that, that a good amount of it starts when someone's young, uh, it starts at the home, you know, no matter what the education system is, it's whatever the person has grown up with, it's whatever the person is exposed to also, you know? Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if people living in concentrations where there's a higher population of people with developmental, mental health, uh, neurological conditions are, are, have a greater feeling 
of tolerance, uh, maybe even acceptance of individuals with that kind of thing. And I think that uh, it's, it's, you know, I've, I've said it before many, many times that greater exposure to this really, really does help. Otherwise, you know, people will not know who the other person is. They maybe may hear about it somewhere. They may make fun of it. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, even if even if life situations can make you feel extremely anxious and can make you feel a lot of anxiety because of the because of how unfortunate and some would say how cruel some of our peers can be, um, you still need to stand out there to show people that this is a different way and this is a different person and to expose that person to a different person, no matter how strenuous, no matter how much anxiety you can get, because in the end, you're still teaching that person. That person may not learn a lesson, um, and that may sound contradictory, but you're still teaching a person that this is something that they had never seen before. And maybe once that person grows up, or maybe somewhere down the road later in life, that person could go, I've known that person before, or I've known what about that person. So <clears throat> my mother likes to say this constantly, um, that later, uh, that in the here and now, and also a little bit before, she would say that she had speculations now of people that she had met when she was a lot younger, who may have fit the diagnosis of autism. And I think that in itself, you know, that's almost what I would like to call unconscious tolerance, because you're basically allowing people into your world, and they may end up having the diagnosis of autism or something else, but you're still treating them as a as a as a person with dignity and as a person that, you know, deserves to be treated like anyone else should. And so I know I, I feel like I'm pandering to the academians, um, ac academicians who are listening to the program, the professors going, yeah, that guy is correct. Um, I'm going to have him in for a TED talk. I can't wait for this guy's TED talk. Um, <laughs> instead, I think it would be called the uh, uh, Fred talk or something like that because I'm not suited at all for a TED talk. But um, yeah, uh, well, this is NPR. This is Fresh Air. And we were just talking about steps of, uh, but uh, I, it's before I finish though, um, the education system also uh, is would be very, very helpful, too, because it's to educate people about everything in the world around them. And, you know, instead of basically having people, I, I, I don't know how many schools do this, but I think that schools should basically find ways, not maybe full integration, 
uh, but basically find a way to uh, have students from, you know, the the, reg the level three or advanced, whatever, those kinds of classes, partner up or learn more or, you know, get involved with someone who is in the special education classes of a school. Because then that would increase tolerance. If you just basically slide everyone of the special education into a bunch of classrooms, you close the door and you, you're like, okay, they're here, but we're not gonna do anything to make the other students know that these are individuals who have dignity and they have the ability to, you know, be as important as anyone else. If you're just gonna sh shut the door, then that's not gonna really help anyone. Yeah, ignorance. You know, like, uh, sorry for interrupting, but like you have a foreign exchange student, you know, um, there are mo isn't there like something in which, you know, uh, class or something to do with like partnering up with a foreign exchange student? Uh, why not do the same with special education students? I love that idea. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say. Yeah, sorry for interrupting. No, all good. Ignorance is. I feel that bullying you know, of course, there are those bullies who, you know, may have some antisocial type traits, and those do exist. But there are other bullies who are just ignorant to the differences that other people have. And that's where education could be, could, could revert that uh, for, for a lot of children. And exactly like Merrick saying, having programs where a student can be paired with, you know, um, a friend or a fellow classmate that has a neurodevelopmental condition so they can learn more about each other. Uh, that's a possibility. Also just teaching about it. You know, they teach us a lot about, uh, about uh, abstaining from drugs in, in school, they teach us about health and exercise. So why not, why not teach a little bit about, you know, uh, neurodevelopment and um, what this would do in my eyes is create a situation where now that more and more kids have knowledge of these conditions and, you know, that the other classmates may be acting differently is not something that they they have control over at that very given moment with that knowledge you might have more children standing up to the bullies and saying hey we're not going to tolerate that kind of mistreatment um, as opposed to just being bystanders while that's taking place and if you can shift more and more of those minds all of a sudden you're 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 um swinging the pendulum in the other direction towards, you know, children welcoming people with these differences versus just tolerating bullying that's taking place. I uh, sort of do agree with you, but unfortunately when it comes to like PSAs and 
a classroom PSAs, that kind of thing, uh, or what, what I mean, school PSAs, where you get her into the auditorium, some of the students would actually pay attention and acknowledge what it is that's going on. But for many students, they just look at it as a joke. So, you know, how do you uh, divert away from looking at things like that as a joke? And I do believe that if you were to have uh, like one of those programs like I was talking about, you know, you, you can't really uh, basically wave it away and say this was two hours a waste of my time. You're actually you actually have to get in there. You have to do things and you have to you know, be able to understand that, um, that, that, that you have, you know, other people in this world who maybe have a brain that works differently than you do. Um, so yeah. I, I think that uh, anything, though, that maybe promotes something like this is probably not a bad idea at all. Um, but I remember one of the uh, school PSAs and I was sitting in there and I saw a bunch of people just laughing their heads off and acting mocking and doing crazy stuff. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, <laughs> uh, how, how effective is this really? But I, I think, though, that something about neurodevelopmental stuff is something that people will not expect. So they can't just wave it off and go, oh, sorry, drugs are bad. Okay, fine. But if it's neurodevelopmental, they'll be like, I don't even know what to say to uh, mock this with. So maybe it's the aspect of surprise that can help uh, something like that happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's well said. Um, I will hand over the torch to you now. Yeah, as I uh, gibber quite uh, a lot for this one, because I had a concept for my stories. Um, for the next two articles, I would like to approach Father's Day as it has been a very special day for me. I was born on Father's Day, and I feel like the person in the family who is closest to me personality-wise is my father. I've even thought that out of everyone I know, if we were to do a genetic map of my autism, he would be a perfect starting point. Perhaps if I had kids, they would probably be autistic too. So I've decided to share two valuable articles from Autism Speaks, which briefly but effectively talks about parenting as a father with an autistic child and about parenting as an autistic father. There are resources out there that can help for those of our listeners who may need help in any of these areas. On our advisory board, we do have a father with autism. Make sure to tune in again to our interview with Ron Sanderson, episode number 23. And while he talks about his marriage and his background, he also talks about his daughter. Yes, if you are autistic, you can get married, have kids, and have a fulfilling and capable lifestyle in life. Don't let anyone dissuade you from that. I've also known many individuals who are fathers to children with autism, and they are great champions for their children. Even with my ideas about my father, it wasn't easy for him taking care of me as I was growing up, but we somehow came out of it stronger. Do not let the hard times get you down, fathers of children with autism. Rather, the fact that you are doing your best, even if it may be difficult, should give each of you the best rewards. 
So here's my first story. I'd like to highlight this article first that comes with five pointers on taking care of a child with autism from a father who's raising one. The article is called Five Things I Want to Share with My Fellow Autism Dads from 2018, and the author, Matthew Oakes, co-writes a blog with his wife, Courtney, at 808 The Adventures. Mr. Oakes has had a very rough journey trying to have kids, details in the article, but ended up fathering a child with verbal apraxia, which affects verbal communication and autism, and a second kid. This article is meant to relieve the pressure coming from parenting, especially parenting an individual with autism. This points to other fathers of autistic children, especially new fathers, rely on concentrating on the importance of being a father of an autistic child. To refocus the stress and frustration of the day-to-day struggles into nurturing care and love for your child. A strong recommendation to not parent alone, but as a team and to become a representative of the parenting autism story. Perhaps to become a champion of your child with autism too. As mentioned prior, I've never been a parent, and so the points made in the article may not be completely accurate. But reading the article, I think that the points made in it are important. Instead of letting these experiences of parenting reveal your weaknesses, turn them into strengths to talk about with the rest of the community. If you want to learn more about the Oaks family, in 2014, the participant YouTube channel came the Fatherhood Project, which is about being a good dad, and they did a video on them. So Nate, you must have had a lot of exposure to fathers of autistic children. Any words of encouragement for them? Yeah, during my time conducting research in person and coaching tennis at the Ells for Autism Foundation, I got to meet some incredible fathers who were just very involved in their child's lives and um, I would say the best sort of behavior that I observed from these parents was, or, or sorry, from these fathers was trying to facilitate opportunities for play and socialization um, with their child. And that's not to say that that's anything different from what, um, a father of a typical neurotypical child would do, right? Fathers from an evolutionary developmental perspective are the primary caregivers when it comes to to play opportunities and interacting with the world around them. And so I got to see, you know, dads creating these these games of, of throwing uh, a bouncy ball back and forth, or, you know, even a dad coming onto the tennis court and trying to rally back and forth with their child. And it was just this type of engagement and providing opportunities for, for social play um, that, that I thought was, was incredibly cool to see. And, you know, I, I um, just want to tell all the dads out there that no matter what um, condition your child might be dealing with, chances are they're still hungry for these types of social and play opportunities. And you're in a very good position to provide that to them. And I know that I'm not you, but I would also say that, you know, also they're definitely in need of love. Yes. And it's up, 
uh, it's up to you to help provide a loving spirit so that, you know, that the children will know what love is. So, uh, yes. yeah, I, I, I really, really felt like uh, your answer was quite well done. Well, thank you. Quite good. All right, so um, my second story. All right, while there are probably a lot of resources on being a father to a child with autism, and I've heard a lot of beautiful stories, the perspective of a new father with autism is not as common to hear about. In fact, the father in this article mentioned that resources for someone like him were virtually non-existent. I think that the history of autism for a number of decades is either that individuals with autism cannot be fathers, or the use of forced sterilization to prevent men with autism from becoming fathers. And now that autism has become such a fleshed out diagnosis to encompass 75 million people worldwide, according to the 2021 CDC, perhaps this lack of resources should not exist anymore. Yet I feel like the good thing is that a cursory web search yields many results of people and medical experts speaking about either being a father with autism, knowing a father with autism, or providing a perspective on fathering with autism. Which brings me back to our second article for Father's Day because people do need to learn about what it is like to have autism and also to be a father, especially since I'm a strong believer that autism is in the genetics. Wouldn't surprise me if anybody who has autism or knows someone who does can trace traits of the condition in the family tree. Famous self-advocate John Elder Robeson has a kid on the spectrum and so does John Miller, who is a very well-known speaker about the subject. In fact, there is a live science article that mentions parents of children with autism are more likely to have some of the traits associated with autism than parents whose children don't have the disorder, which can include moms and dads, which I will link to in the meta piece. In June of 2020, guest blogger Phil Martin, who has Asperger's school phobia, ADHD, and works for the fire department, wrote an article called the joys and challenges of being a father with autism, which along with his podcast interview represents quite well the anxieties and cheer of being a new parent while also being autistic. His actual biggest fear was before his child was even born, reflecting on how his condition would hurt his relationship with his son and may make him a bad father. Unfortunately, he was in the classic, well, kind of fortunately though, he was in the classic process of overthinking things. Now he loves having his son in his life and feels like it has been such a blessing for him. Instead of seeing his autism as being a disconnect between him and his kid, it actually has given them a very close relationship. Like the father above who was raising an autistic child, he also believes in strong teamwork between parents to not overwhelm the parent with autism. His lesson is that being a father is just simply growing your child with love and guidance allowing a balance of autonomy, but also moral understanding and providing the building blocks and lessons of life that will lead them down the path to be a great human being. Including his curriculum is to be 100% transparent about himself and about his autism. Very similar to Ron Sanderson's example, being open about one's diagnosis will foster greater tolerance and understanding that the child can spread to others who are impacted by their positivity. Certainly interesting that it feels like the story of the father of the child with autism and the story of the autistic father seems so similar in a way. What's the most important is to own up to your diagnosis or to your child's diagnosis 
In a family where at least one parent has autism, one may have to own up to both. I felt like instead of my usual stories, I would spotlight the importance of being a father no matter whom is on the spectrum. Nate, what are your key takeaways from these stories? Well, Merrick, first of all, I commend you for selecting these stories and um, not only because of its application to Father's Day, of course, but just that as these blog posts highlight, this is an underappreciated and, and kind of under uh, discussed topic, especially the, the second portion on being a father with autism and really interesting hearing about some of the, the anxieties that Phil Martin was describing. My takeaway from these stories and the perspectives of these wonderful dads is that there's sort of two keys to, you know, um, making this all work. And the first one would be having some openness uh, about the diagnosis um, and again, creating more understanding in the family dynamic. And then beyond that, um, you know, trying, trying to uh, not overcomplicate things so much and really just focusing on, on the love that can inevitably occur in these relationships and just just demonstrating good traits of parenting, just being warm, being understanding, being playful at times. You know, it would be interesting. Um, it would definitely be interesting to, uh, to do some research on this topic moving forward. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's really important work and, uh, Again, just thanks for for bringing these perspectives onto the podcast. You're definitely welcome. So, wow, what a episode we've had. Um, uh, so, before we go, is there anything you would want to uh, tell our listeners, Nate? Yes, uh, you know. Thank you again for giving us this platform and this opportunity. Thank you to the Els for Autism Foundation, of course, for all the amazing work that is being done on a daily basis to help the community and individuals within the community and just help to continue to foster knowledge and awareness. And I would last like to give a thank you to my dad um, for teaching me so many valuable lessons in life, uh, perseverance, um, how to have fun, <laughs> how to, uh, not take things too seriously. And, uh, you know, for that, I'm grateful. Are you what sure we you? didn't have the same dad? <laughs> I, I, I can say the exact same thing about my dad. I think they would get along very well. Let's put it that way. I'm pretty sure that they would. So um, as usual, 
Uh, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. We'll be seeing you again in July with some more coverage on us on the autism community in general. So, as usual, here is our last little hurrah before the end of the show. For... I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high like a butterfly I fly into the air So high Oh, like a butterfly Like a bird I was meant to soar I will fly through the sunlight And even when it pours It can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor caterpillar like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly So high Oh, like a butterfly I'll fly into the air So high Just like a butterfly Now I can fly so high Cause I'm a boy